You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are back in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest, chronologically earliest recorded gospel account of Jesus Christ. We took a couple weeks break of recap. Just a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus appoints the 12 apostles, and then he gives them authority, and he sends them out to deliver and to heal and to preach. And where we pick it back up today is in verse 30, where it says, the apostles returned to Jesus. This is really key. It's the return to Jesus. An endeavor back to be with Christ. When Jesus calls us into discipleship, when Jesus calls us to follow him, it is, and please listen, this is key, it is first and foremost a call to be with Jesus. What is God's will for my life? What is God's vision for your life? What is God's vision for his church? Here it is, to be with Jesus. We sang that in the last song we sang this morning. No greater gift than he- that, he- that heaven can give to us than the grace and the blessing of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Nothing greater, nothing more. It is Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about being with Jesus. Before he sends his disciples into the world, he draws them in. But it's interesting. What we're reading here is that even after being sent into the world, Jesus draws his disciples back to himself for a season of rest. Abiding relationship with Jesus means that there's a rhythm of engagement and then withdrawal. Engagement, which we talk quite a bit about, and then withdrawal, which we sort of neglect. This is the inhale and the exhale of the life of the Christian. This is the inhale and the exhale of life in the kingdom with patterns of frequent retreat. Retreat. What comes to mind when you hear that? Probably for most of us, we imagine those scenes from the movies where the losing army is outmanned, outgunned. They realize that they're being defeated and they fall back. They call for a retreat. We, we think of retreat in terms of losers. In a world where people are divided up in, in, in losers and winners, retreat is typically for losers. But it's important to note that in the kingdom of God, this is not the way it works. Retreat is not a sign of failure. L- let me say that again. In the kingdom of God, retreat is not a sign of failure. In fact, far from it. What we read here is that people are being healed. People are being delivered. They're achieving great things. They come back essentially to brag to Jesus, look at all these things that we've done. Look at all that we've accomplished for the kingdom. You think about it, this is really the moment to leverage momentum. Strike while the iron is hot. Things are right now on the brink of revival. The kingdom is advancing. 
And yet in this sort of like, let's keep it up, let's keep going moment, Jesus says these strange words. Now let's get away. Like it's go time, Jesus, and Jesus like, that's great. Let's get away. Let's take a break. Look at me in verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So let's just kind of dig into this verse right here, into this theme, looking first at the call from Jesus to come away by yourselves. Jesus first says, come away, he, by yourselves. Now, the 21st century is really marked by two extremes. And here are the two extremes. Extreme individualism, and yet extreme codependency. Extremely individualistic and yet extremely dependent on one another. And it's strangely compatible if you think about it. Because the more that we take center stage on our own, in our own theater, in our own lives, the more that we depend on others to then fulfill their roles as cast members in our little plot as extras in our unfolding plot of life. When we are center stage in life, what we require is attention. When we are center stage, what we require is affirmation. And it's strange that in our independence, we're actually extremely dependent on others. The more that we claim to be these individual, independent, autonomous people, the more actually we reveal that we depend on other people. Never has it been more important for us to grasp the significance of what Jesus is doing here when he calls his disciples to come away by themselves, by yourselves. Now, in his little book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I believe we may have a copy or two left at a resource table back there, the whole premise of the book by the title is that we are to live the Christian life together. And what he does is really undermine the lie that we can navigate Christian faith alone. But he adds an extremely important warning that I think that we often overlook when we talk all about community, and we talk about community quite a bit around here. But he gives this really important warning that I, I personally overlook often, and, and I think many of us overlook. And this is what he says. He said, many people seek fellowship because they are afraid to be alone. So extroverts, why don't you listen right now? Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He will do harm to himself and to the community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer that call. Alone you had to struggle and pray. And alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape yourself for God has singled you out. Those who take refuge in community while fleeing from themselves are actually misusing it. If we are finding solace in community in order to escape ourselves, we're actually misusing the gift of community. One of the struggles that, of seeking solitude is that it places us in a place where we're stripped of all the things that we think make us us. All the things that we think give us value, all the things that we think uh, give us worth in this life, the relationships, the success, the influence, the power, when we get away, it's all stripped away. It's removed from us. And it's there in solitude that we're really forced to answer the question. Here's the question. Who is the human being beneath the human being? Who is the human 
being beneath all of the human doing? Can we answer that? Notice, when uh, we introduce ourselves to someone that we're meeting for the very first time, it's probably one or two sentences away before we introduce ourselves by what we do for a career or who we are in relationship to another person or some privilege or some accolade or some uh, graduate, you know, whatever the case may be, we, we typically introduce ourselves. We, we take our best step forward with our accomplishments. But what is the, who is the human being beneath all the human doing? And I honestly think that probably very few of us can actually answer that with confidence. I've met a lot of ministry, Christian ministry leaders that are probably some of the least self-aware people I've ever met. And who am I kidding? I'm probably amongst them. And it's really bothered me. I mean, this really bothered me that I've met some some Christian leaders that are literally the the least self-aware individuals in the world. And for a long time, I wrestled with the question of why. Why? How could this happen? You're, You're... you're in a context that like demands honesty and to talk, talking about you know, the gravity of the knowledge of God and on and on and on. But then it clicked. It made sense. And if you think about it, the church world has a way of creating a place where we can successfully hide from ourselves. Think about it. This is a place where we can be preoccupied with doing great things outside of ourselves to the degree where we avoid some of the ugly stuff that's going on within us. I know I got that issue, but I'll just keep suppressing it because I'm doing great things. And if I'm doing great things, then it sort of outdoes the the stuff that's going on inside. To avoid the hard stuff that God is calling us to, to confront and really to bring under his transforming grace. It's interesting, the procession, or the progression rather, of these events here in Mark. It says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus, look at all that we've done. And immediately he said to them, come away by yourselves. No congratulations. No attaboy. No, like, you're right. You did do a lot of stuff. Goodness. Immediately, immediately. All right, let's get away. Now's the time to get away. Now's the time to come away by yourself. Why? Because they, like you and I, were tempted to think about identity in terms of activity to think of themselves in terms of what they do and what they accomplish. And what Jesus knows is that this is probably one of the quickest ways to experiencing burnout in the faith, that we attach our identity to our Christian activity. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's get away. See, we at times can believe the lie that our busyness equates to fruitfulness. Or what we do for God is what makes us important to God, what makes us valuable to God, which, by the way, is a lie. And one of the most meaningful ways that God undermines this lie that we are all so tempted to believe, and and one of the ways that God reminds us of who we truly are in Jesus Christ is in times of solitude, when it is all stripped away. And see, in solitude, solitude has a unique way of, of reinforcing a central gospel truth, And it is this, that identity is received, not achieved. We live in a world where your identity is achieved. You go and make yourself somebody. You earn your reputation. You earn your place. 
But in the kingdom of God, it's the other way around. Our identity is received. And out of that received identity by grace, then our activity flows. Then our lives flow. And it's there in solitude where all of our layers of importance are removed that we are faced with the reality of really who we are. It's there when all of our doing and all of our performing and all of our creating and all of our contributing is taken away. There we're reminded of our true identity in Jesus. When, When we remove ourselves from the places where we are in demand, those places that we gravitate towards in our codependency so that we can feel a sense of worth and a sense of people being grateful for our existence and our presence. When we remove ourselves from those places where we are important and in demand and we contribute something, then we stand naked and we stand vulnerable and we stand empty-handed in the presence of a God of mercy. To receive, not achieve. Ready to receive his pronouncement of grace over us. The blood of Jesus Christ speaking a better word over us. Come away by yourself, secondly, to a desolate place. That sounds sort of mysterious, doesn't it? There's a term in anthropology, liminality, which essentially represents the the space in between in a rite of passage. As an individual or a group is breaking away from the old and is at the threshold of breaking into the new, there's the liminal space in between. It's that disorienting space in the middle. As a pastor, I meet a lot of people sort of in that liminal space in between, that wilderness desolate place. And so a couple examples, maybe you're a young woman and you've established your life based on a sense of freedom and independence. You've earned a name for yourself in your career or in schooling or something like that. And now you're stepping into a new stage of life of motherhood, particularly the early years of motherhood, liminal space where it's disorienting, where you're asking questions like, wait, I thought I knew who I was. I thought I knew who I was based on what I contribute to this world, based on what what I'm able to accomplish, based on what I'm free to do, and, and now where am I? How did I get here? Or perhaps you're a college student, uh, student college is the liminal space. You thought when you turned 18, you became an adult. <laughs> and now you're, you're stepping through this process where you realize now you're asking big questions like, who am I? Okay, I'm getting the school. Maybe you're at schooling. Maybe you just graduated. You're about to graduate, and you're realizing, oh my gosh, I thought I was an adult. Now I'm stepping into a new season. Where am I going? Who am I? What am I supposed to do? Or perhaps you've worked 40 years. You're a man or woman that has established your career, and you're coming to the end. You're about a year away from retirement, and it just hit you. Who am I if I'm not working? Who am I if I don't have all these things to contribute, things to fill my time and my space? It's that liminal space. It's that wilderness moment. It's that place of disorientation as we're breaking away from the old and breaking into the new. And it's interesting that that throughout the Bible, the wilderness, the desolate place, serves as that liminal disorienting space. As God draws the children of Israel out of Egypt... And he's bringing them into the promised land. Where does he bring them through first? The desert. The wilderness. And it's interesting because at the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, God rescues Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt. But it's in the wilderness, it's in the desert that God is rescuing Israel from themselves. 
There was still a work of rescue and redemption that was still required before they would go in to the promised land. This is what the wilderness is for. It's, it, it, the desolate place is God's staging ground for what he's planning on doing in and through his people. It's where the deep heart work is constructed, where deconstruction and reconstruction occurs within the heart of individuals and God's people. It's in the wilderness and it's in the desolate place. And the wilderness is crucial in the life of a disciple. This is indispensable. There's no way around it. It's just through it. There's no way to the promised land but through the wilderness. And there are seasons where God will bring us into the wilderness. And if we could just be honest, it's against our will. There are times where we go into that wilderness where we're like, I was not planning on coming here, but here we are. Even said earlier in Mark that Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. But here we see something different. It's also the place that Jesus calls us to willingly endeavor into. To choose to go to. Now the question I have as I'm reading this is, is this a physical wilderness? Do do we need to literally go find a desolate place? When I was preparing to leave to go and and minister in in Europe a little over a decade ago, I I got the sense that I needed to enter into a time of serious prayer and preparation for what God was going to do in and through our family as we went overseas. And so I got it in my mind that I needed to get to an actual deserted place. And I had this picture in my mind of like a wooded place, where it was just going to be me and God. And I remember Michelle actually asking as I was setting out one day to, to go. She's like, where are you even going? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to head east. I'm going to head towards the mountain. I'm just going to let the Spirit lead me where my faith is without borders. I'm stepping into faith here, Michelle. Like, don't hold me back, okay? I kid you not. I make, I, I make it to Linden. Okay? which is actually a very desolate place. <laughs> Not London. That's where we were eventually going. Linden. And so I look around. I'm like, well, this is as good a place as any. So I pull over into an abandoned field. In hindsight, it was probably trespassing. And I, I pull over. I get out. I get my Bible. And I, and I get my journal. And I begin, you know, to, to spend time. And I'm like waiting for this sort of Elijah moment where I hear the still small voice of God And about 15 to 30 minutes pass by, and I think to myself, who am I kidding? I hate the outdoors. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, who am I kidding? God is not in Linden. No offense if you're from Linden, but... (laughs) I had it in my mind that to get away, I needed to get away, that the desolate place was far, far away. And don't get me wrong, maybe this is the case for you. Maybe you connect with God in nature. There, there, were, there were the desert saints in Christian history that really truly believed that you need to get away to the desert to be with God. Don't hear me wrong. But what I am saying and what I did discover that day is that the wilderness could be sought where I am. And just as God sends streams in the desert, God also sends desolate places in the city. Quiet spaces in chaotic places. This was the year that I also discovered the stillness and the quiet of the morning, the early morning. A time and a place that uh, even to this day I I cherish and have cherished almost daily for the last decade. 
times to be silent, times to open up God's word and let him speak, times to reflect, times to examine, times to just do nothing. To not be a human doing, just to be a human being in the presence of God. To just sit, to just be. If you have the NIV translation and you're reading along, you see here that the desolate place is actually translated and can be translated the quiet place. Where is Jesus calling us? He's calling us into the quiet place. But here's the problem. The problem is that we live in a very noisy world. We live in a world that is constantly vying for our attention. The television in the background, the the demands of bosses and coworkers and employees, questions from kids, doorbells ringing, phone alerts and notifications going off, alarms, cries, honks, hums. It's almost impossible to find quiet places. And even to escape the noise, you've got to replace it with more noise. That's why we put in earbuds or, or headphones. It's no longer about finding silence. and It's no longer about finding solitude. It's about drowning out the noise. It's about competing sounds. But let's be honest, as much as we would like to blame the noisiness of this world, it seems that we in the 21st century can't live without it. We're addicted to the noise. We're addicted to the distraction. You ever realize how, how hard we naturally try to avoid absolute silence? It's, like, it's why the first, what's the first thing we do when we get in the car? We turn on the radio. What's the first thing we do when we get home? We turn on music. We turn on the TV. If it's not the TV at night, it's the sound spa so we can go to sleep. There's always got to be something going. Some noise has always got to be humming. Something always has to be filling the silence. And so the question for us, the question we really need to consider today is why? And I think for a lot of us, it's fear. We're simply afraid. See, something happens when we go from being children to becoming adults, our fear of the dark changes into fear of the silence. You ever thought about that? Kids demand that the lights be left on, but we're no different. We demand that the noise be left on. I I still remember a time in my childhood, probably one of the more traumatizing moments of my early childhood. My brother and I had this talking teddy bear named Teddy Ruxpin. Anyone remember Teddy Ruxpin? Teddy was the business. You could take a cassette tape, state-of-the-art here, open up his back, put it in, and then his mouth moved and told stories. And so one night I accidentally leave Teddy Ruxpin on the bed, and I rolled over, and somehow in my sleep I activate Teddy Ruxpin. And he went from being this cute, loving caring, talking, storytelling bear to one of the most terrifying things I'd ever encountered. And I screamed like I've never screamed before. And for the longest time, and it's probably shaped who I am today, I was afraid, not so much of the dark, uh, but what I would discover in the silence. And I remember thinking to myself, what am I going to hear when all the noise stops? And I think if we're to be honest today, I think that that's where we find, a lot, we find ourselves. We're afraid of the quiet places. We're afraid of what we will discover when all the noise and all the busyness stops. Even the psalmist 
can associate with, with, with experiencing something similar to this. He says in Psalm 39, I was mute in silence. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. The question is, what are we so afraid of? What are we, tr- what are we trying to avoid that lurks in the silence? It's not the boogeyman. It's not Teddy Ruxpin. God help us. It's us. In so many ways, we are simply trying to avoid our own existence. Listen to how Francis Schaeffer put it. He said, people today are afraid to be alone. The fear is a dominant mark upon our society. Many now ceaselessly sit in the cinema or read novels about other people's lives or watch dramas. Why? Simply to avoid facing their own existence. Entertainment, and this is prophetic here because this is written decades ago. Entertainment so fills every cranny of our culture, we can easily escape thinking. No one seems to want and no one can find a place for quiet because when you are quiet, you have to face reality. When you're quiet and you're alone, you're forced to face the real us that is only willing to emerge when all the noise and the busyness ceases. But note something, this is exactly, this is the very place that Jesus calls his disciples into. The desolate place, the quiet place, where we must face the reality of who we are in honesty and vulnerability, and yet they discover that we're not alone. Here's the paradox of coming away by ourselves, that in solitude we discover that we're not alone. And it's there in solitude in the presence of God that we can face us with the hope and the confidence that we are loved and that we are accepted and that we are approved by God through Jesus Christ. And knowing that whatever we face in the quiet solitude, whatever we're so afraid of discovering when everything goes silent, it will never ever be greater than the transforming grace of God that will meet us there too. We don't need to fear condemnation as we enter into solitude. What we need to do is we need to anticipate mercy. For the believer, we need to anticipate as we walk into the presence of God, as we come away from all the things and we come away by ourselves to be intimate with God, to be near to God. We do not anticipate condemnation. We anticipate mercy. Listen to the words of Anne Lamott. She said, mercy is a cloak that will wrap around you and protect you. It can block the terror, the dark and most terrifying aspects of your own true self. It is soft. It has lots of folds and enfolds you. It can help you rest and breathe again. I wonder if if many of us are just waiting for that sigh of relief that comes only in the presence of true mercy and grace. See, what the scripture shows us is that the quiet place isn't something to avoid. It's actually a gift from God in a place of renewal and and rest. It invites us to leave behind all of the noise and all the busyness and all of the demands and pressures of life in order to experience greater intimacy with God, which, by the way, is the goal of the Christian life. And it invites us to free ourselves from our addiction to distraction and our addiction to busyness and our addiction to noise so that we can once again be alive to the voice of God. 
as he speaks into our lives, as he speaks life into us. In 1 Samuel 3, the Bible tells us that there was a period of time where the voice of God was rare. Until one quiet night, that all changed. A young boy who lived in the temple was awoken in the middle of the night by the voice of the Lord saying, Samuel, Samuel. And so the young boy gets up and he runs to the priest, Eli, and says, Eli, you called me. Here I am. And he says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So Samuel goes back to bed. And again, Samuel, Samuel. And so he gets up and he comes to Eli and he says, priest, I'm here. You called me. And he says, I did not call you. Go back to bed. And a third time he, he hears his name, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and he runs to the priest and he says, here I am. You called me. The Bible tells us this. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood calling, as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The quiet place is where we, too, say to God, Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. I'm listening. Perhaps we have not learned, like Samuel, to discern the voice of God. Or perhaps... We have no quiet place to even hear him. In a world that is so noisy, it's imperative that we create spaces of quiet. Daily, weekly, monthly, annually, where we break away from all the noise, where we break away from all the pressures, where we break away from all the demands. Maybe it's early in the morning. Maybe it's late at night. Maybe it's your lunch break, wherever it is but just a time to get away and to be silent before the Lord where we can hear his words of truth and grace and life and righteousness over us, allowing God to get the first and the last word in our lives. Our days are filled with 7,000 to 20,000 of our own words, depending on if you're a man or a woman. I won't tell you which one. Happy Father's Day. 7,000 to 20,000 of our own words we are hearing. How many of the words of Jesus are we listening to? I mean, I say this in the best way. We need to shut up and listen. We need to create spaces where we do not have the last word in our lives. But God does. Come away to a desolate place. Lastly, and rest a while. There's a scene in Rocky 1 where it's the night before the big fight and Rocky is in the stadium, the arena that he's about to fight in the next day. He is all alone. He can't sleep. He's walking around. He's looking, and and, and we think he's all alone, but there's this moment where Mr. Juergens, the the promoter, he comes, and he says, what brings you out in the night? But it's interesting. Rocky doesn't respond to his question. He asks, why are you here so late at night? And he doesn't respond. What he does, he looks up at the, the banner, you know, he says something about his, 
He's like, I'm wearing red shorts tomorrow and it's white or something along those lines. And so the promoter responds and he essentially says, Rocky, try to get some rest. Try to get some rest. And it's clear when he gets back to his place and he lies down that he just can't sleep. He cannot rest. And so Rocky says this to Adrian as he's asked. He says, I just want to go the distance. If I can go the distance, I'm going to know for the very first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. If I can go the distance with Apollo Creed tomorrow, then I will know that I'm not just a nobody from the neighborhood. So the question is, what kept him up? And really, what drove him to fight, to go the distance? And it was trying to prove to himself and to others that he was something, that he was a somebody. Why is resting so hard for us to do sometimes? I think it's because for many of us, we're still wrestling with the question of who we are. Trying to figure out who we are. Because deep down, we still have something to prove. We're still trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. We're still trying to prove ourselves to others. And really, we're still trying to prove ourselves to God. Restlessness really stems from this feeling of incompleteness, that something is missing. That at the end of the day, I just didn't do enough, that it's not complete, that there's still more to add, that it just wasn't enough. My life is not adding up. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer highlights the life and ministry of Jesus and how he fulfills what Moses and Joshua failed to do as the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and into the promised land and were coming through the wilderness. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in ushering the people into God's rest. But the writer of Hebrews says, where Joshua and Moses failed, Jesus is not. And the writer of Hebrews tells us this, that because of Jesus, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever's entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so what he's alluding to is this creation account where it says that God creates. He creates in every movement of creation. He steps back and he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. And then on the seventh day, he ceases from working. He rests. He puts down his work and he's able to say it is good. Or in other words, it is finished. So how do we experience the same sort of rest? He says to enter into this rest. How do we experience this this true rest, God's rest? And the answer is that we must discover and embrace that same sense of completeness. That same sense of completeness that comes with those words, it is finished. Here's how we can enter in God's rest. Here's how we can truly experience rest. It's that when we trust upon Jesus Christ... When we are united with Christ by faith, everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. Which means that the final words that Christ proclaims from the cross, it is finished, are applied to our lives as well. Which means that despite that nagging sense of of inner disappointment and lack and failure and incompleteness, the one that keeps us up at night, 
That God's pronouncement of it is finished comes over us, which means that his obedience becomes our obedience. His works become our works. His death and resurrection becomes our death and resurrection. His completeness becomes our completeness. The writer of Hebrews, elsewhere, he says, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When do you sit down? It's not when there was work to be done. You sit down when the job is done. And as Christ was ascended and sat down at the right hand of majesty of God, it was a declaration that it is finished. It is complete. And the good news for the believer is because Jesus sat down, we can sit down too. Because God rested from his works, because Jesus rested from his works, we too can rest from our works. Because Jesus said, it is complete. At the end of the day, we too can say, you know what? Despite all the stacks of paper on, our, on, on my desk and all the, the classes I still have to take and all the things that got left undone today, Jesus' words, it is finished, come over me. This is the kind of rest that Jesus calls us into. And this is the kind of rest that flows from assurance that we live in the unending favor and delight of the Lord. That our place in the kingdom of God, our place in eternity, is not based on our usefulness. It's not based on our productivity. It's not based on what we accomplish. It's not based on how many degrees we get or, or how much money we have at the end of the year. It's determined by the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's final pronouncement over you, believer. It is good. It is finished. God rests. So can you. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, let us strive to enter that rest. I love this. Let us labor for that rest. That's a paradox. What does it mean? It means that we're spending our lives right now, our every last ounce of energy, trying to find that deep rest that's only found in Jesus Christ. That's why one more vacation is never enough. That's why despite the best night's sleep, the next day we're still exhausted. Because something deeper is calling us into a deeper rest. Go enjoy that vacation. Get a good night rest. Take a day off but strive to enter into this rest. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge. Thank you for this call to come away by ourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. We acknowledge, God, that...